This is always this weird feeling because it's like, how can so many people tell me that I'm responsible for shifting culture in this way or pushing things forward, but at the same time, it seems so much harder for me to get put in the rooms where my career would actually be elevated. It's really hard for me to answer this in a very direct way because there are there are so many layers to that question, you know? Maybe what sums it up is that a lot of times the people that open the doors don't really get to, to have the roses. That's musician and artist Mickey Blanco. When I think of non-binary people who paved a way for our community's visibility, there's someone who immediately comes to mind. So often as non-binary people, we encounter folks who make it seem like being the non-binary badasses we are is somehow a historical, a new liberal fad. Back in my day, is what I feel like I hear them saying all the time. But that, you know, posturing, it erases and divorces us from a lineage chock full of folks who move through the world in gender expansive ways. Sure, they likely didn't use non-binary as an identity marker. Perhaps they called themselves queens or fairies or genderqueer. Maybe they just used gay as their identifier because of the times, right? But without a doubt, they existed and we exist because of them. I'm your host, Travel Anderson, and on this episode of Entertainment Weekly's Untold Stories Beyond the Binary, we're going to take a step back. While luxuriating in the current moment of visibility is great, it's important for us to contextualize the now by looking at the past. I promise it won't be boring, so stay tuned. As folks from communities often deemed marginal, in this case, I'm obviously talking about non-binary and trans folks, but this applies to black and brown people, disabled folks, non-Christians, etc. We sometimes have a tough time accessing images of possibility. It's often tough for us to look at movies and TV shows and stage plays and the musical landscape and actually see ourselves. We're often looking at folks and characters meant to be stand-ins for all those who feel different than or eccentric or odd when compared to those around us, as opposed to seeing the lives and the bodies and the experiences reflective of our actual lives and bodies and experiences. That means we have to look at our pop culture images differently. We project upon and reinterpret what we see to affect some sort of belonging or affinity. So much so that our communities end up having our own canons of imagery of moments in pop culture that we recall as giving very much non-binary teas, even though it actually isn't non-binary. For me, I always go back to the Powerpuff Girls, all right? They're doing a live action reboot. We won't talk about it. It's okay. But I'm talking about the animated version. Everybody remembers Miss Blossom and Buttercup and Miss Bubbles taking on Mojo Jojo. But my eyes were always glued to him. But what's this? It appears our girls are secretly being monitored. But by who? Oh, no, not... I, I, I can't say it! This is a villain so evil, so sinister, so horribly vile, that even the utterance of his name strikes fear into the hearts of men. The only safe way to refer to this king of darkness is simply... him. Now... 
I just learned that him is an acronym for his infernal majesty, but they were this flamboyantly fabulous villain from the animated series. If you don't know who I'm talking about, imagine a red devilish figure with lobster-like claws. He's got a black widow's peak for hair. He had lime green contacts for whatever reason. Three eyelashes on each eye. He's got a curled beard, rosy pink cheeks, a sickening black lip, probably from the Fenty collection, honey. Okay. And they're wearing this red jacket and skirt moment with pink tulle at the collar and hemline, a black leather belt, and these black thigh high Lady Gaga type heeled boots. All right. Him was serving looks. And we could talk about the animated villains being coded as queer, but that's a whole nother podcast, all right? What I can say is I vividly remember something going off in my mind when I was younger, that him had to be family. And not just queer, mind you, but he shape-shifted and his voice could sound super femme and super masculine. Facial hair, but he loved himself some blush and some mascara. The eyeliner was on fleek, as the kids say. Oftentimes, what we could see in terms of him's presentation of self, it just gave very much gender abolitionists, all right? I called up some of my faves to see what moments in pop culture they recall identifying with. The people and characters that felt non-binary to them, even though they likely weren't non-binary at all. Here's a taste from my conversation with Bob the Drag Queen. One of the questions we've been asking everyone is, you know, when we talk about representation, one of the common questions is like, when's, when's the first time you saw yourself on screen? But we've been tweaking that because as like non-binary folks, sometimes we project kind of a non-binariness onto things or on like characters on TV or musicians or something. So I want to know for you, is there something that you look back on that like you either used to watch or engage with a lot that feels non-binary to you, but may not actually be non-binary? Well, do you mind if we backtrack a little bit to discuss what you just, something you just said, which is a lot of times today, and I actually think it's really problematic and it's not anything that I've heard anyone talking about, how we will put our own definitions and um, labels on people throughout history if it serves whatever purpose we're trying to serve at that time. Yeah. And it happens a lot with the people who were at the Stonewall riots fighting. You know, we use terms like trans woman on Marsha P. Johnson, and Marsha P. Johnson never referred to herself that way. It's just a mm-hmm. term that people have just been putting on. We know that Marsha P. Johnson used she, her pronouns. Sometimes, and we know that Marsha P. Johnson um, referred to herself as gay. That also might be a product of the time that she, that she was in, right? Um, but it's interesting how we put those labels on people, especially when they have cultural relevance. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing things on TV that I remember I thought were pretty magnificent. Things like seeing um, Whoopi Goldberg, who was a a woman on TV who made her money, but not in what people would consider a stereotypical feminine fashion. Mm -hmm. But she still made her, but she still was the toast of Hollywood in her own regard. And then I think about um, people like Bugs Bunny, who who would, uh, you know, dress up in a full opera diva outfit um, to serve his purpose. And I think of um, Tu Wong Fu was a pretty formative movie for me as well. 
Although Tu Fu was a very interesting depiction of drag. I don't know any drag queens who get dressed in, in high horror drag to drive across the country. <laughs> I mean, not in your best, not in your best clothes just to get into a car and drive. I don't know. No, no, I don't know anyone at all that does that. Let alone, let alone drag queens. But I still love the movie. I've been talking about Silence of the Lambs a lot, mm. which has been really funny because all of my trans friends hate me for it because a lot of my trans friends hate Silence of the Lambs. This is Lachlan Watson, who you likely will remember from The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina on Netflix. I love Silence of the Lambs. I have a whole, I have a whole tattoo about oh, wow. it because of how much <laughs> I love Silence of the Lambs. Because it is, it is something that I recently, like as a Gen Z trans person with a lot of privilege, like I look back on it with a very different perspective mm-hmm. um, from the people who like grew up in that, that <laughs> here's your representation, sweetie. Like it's garbage. Um, right. And so I, I look back at it with a very different perspective. And when I watched Signs of the Lambs, it felt extremely non-binary to me because Buffalo Bill, as a villain, never really like self-villainizes. Like Buffalo Bill mm-hmm. is never like, well, I want to be a woman, so I'm going to kill people and make a woman's suit. Like every single time Buffalo Bill is villainized or discriminated against it is from specifically the like straight white guys in the fbi like they're always the ones being like oh well it must be because they're trans that they're killing people but it's never really the trans person's fault and if anything Mm. it makes a better commentary on the societal reaction to buffalo bill Mm. as a person than it says about why buffalo bill was a villain in the first place and i find that fascinating Now, if you're interested in more thoughts from trans folks about Silence of the Lambs and Buffalo Bill, head over to EW.com to check out an interview with actress Jen Richards, who plays a trans role in the Silence of the Lambs spinoff series called Clarice. Here's artist and musician Shamir, followed by comedian and actor Rhea Butcher from Good Trouble and the creator of Steven Universe, Rebecca Sugar. You're gonna laugh because... I we I literally just watched this movie with um my friend and artist that I'm working with. Um she's a trans woman and you know, we, we both got vaccinated and she caved out to Philly and we just had a good old time. Um it was just kikiing and chilling and I was like, No, this movie may be non binary and we watched it and it's this old Disney Channel original movie called Motocrossed. Oh uh, my god. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you know, you know. If you know, you know. If you don't, you don't. And if you don't know, I'm so sorry for you. (laughs) I remember distinctly just being young and being like, she's killing it as a girl. She's killing it as a boy. And she's just killing it. And yeah, that that movie made me non-binary, basically. Yeah, I feel like, you know, when I spend time with this, like I could, I could place that that experience onto so many things in pop Mm -hmm. culture, you know, like I even feel like inspector gadget, like every character on inspector gadget is non-binary. You know what I mean? (laughs) Penny brain, inspector gadget, Dr. Claw, (laughs) the cat, they're all non-binary. You know what I mean? Like, uh, but I think, you know, that, that really speaks to the experience of like the it's inside the house, you know? So then, then that, that story is coming into my house. So I see it that way, you know, like, Mm -hmm. Even, you know, like Facts of Life was a very early, like, lesbian experience for me of, you know, Blair and Joe. And, like, those two actors have adamantly said, like, absolutely not. It's like, okay, but 
they are gay to me. Like you can't, no matter how much you put the brakes on that, you, you too, <laughs> you can't remove it from my house. I'm sorry. The door's locked and it's up on the wall and it's not going mm-hmm. away. But um, one specifically that's come up for me recently is, uh, you know, Gonzo. And now that includes baby Gonzo as well. <laughs> because I just think Gonzo is such a perfect, this is my experience of like Gonzo of, of the Muppet show for anyone who's listening, watching and unaware of the history of Gonzo. <laughs> um, little blue alien, right? Like, I think that's also part of why looking back now, Gonzo is so non-binary to me is that Gonzo exists outside the, even the binary of like human or animal on, Mm -hmm. you know, the -hmm. the Muppets or whatever. And um, just like for me, and this is for me, which is why I'm saying for me three times before I say it Four for me, (laughs) there's something of like being a weirdo, and, like, that's not, like, a judgment. It's just, like, my experience of, like, oh, this is weird. <laughs> I like mm-hmm, this. This mm-hmm. is weird and outside. It's weird. You know? Like, it's strange and different. And, like, um, that, to me, is part of Gonzo's, like, non-binariness. It's just, like, I can't... Nobody knows what Gonzo is, but they also don't care. It's, like, mm-hmm. as a child, you see Gonzo and you're just, like, yep, absolutely. Makes sense to me. I don't need any more explanation. <laughs> shoot him out of a cannon like i'm into it you know and like that experience of just um accepting what is and then getting on board for what's behind that mm-hmm. is really what uh you know the experience of of being non-binary is for me i mean for me it was really revolutionary girl Utena, which is a, a show that i discovered in high school have you seen it are you familiar with i have not i'm i'm not even gonna lie so it's about this, uh, it's about Utena or Utena. As a young girl, she's rescued by a prince. Um, and then instead of wanting to sort of find and be with this prince, she decides she wants to become a prince because that was such a formative memory for her. And then she ends up, um, sort of fighting with the, in this group over, uh, the, the Rose Bride, this character Anthe, who, whoever wins these, these sword duels you know, the Rose Bride ends up belonging to them. So there's this very complicated uh, story about how, you know, she's, she's able to win and then she's with, she's with this person and the whole system seems very wrong, but also what can she do to, pr- to protect Anthe and, you know, how much of it is possessiveness. I mean, the, the whole show is a very, uh, and obviously an intentionally uh, queer and genderqueer and the way that, that she as a character explores her own presentation and, and her own sexuality was really, really resonant with me as a as gender queer, not uh, bisexual person in high school. And I really did. I didn't have um. I really didn't have much a- about about that about those ideas. So it really stuck with me. And there's a lot in Steven Universe that is heavily inspired by that show. As you can see or hear, our individual archives of non-binary representation are vast and run the gamut. Here's Noelle Stevenson, the creator, showrunner, and executive producer of the animated television series, She-Ra and the Princess of Power. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think that like me as a kid had it like more figured out than I do now. I remember very specifically telling people that I was half girl and half boy. Um, when I was very young, I, um, I had a stuffed animal. My favorite stuffed animal was a uh, little Simba. 
Um, and I remember at one point I decided that Simba was now going to be Nala. And so I cut Simba's hair, dressed, dressed Nala in, in a little doll outfit. And I took, I took her around and I was like, everybody, this, this is Nala now. And so I think, you know, kids, it's like you have, I don't know, gender is so abstract anyway. You really don't know what the difference is between being a girl, being a boy or being something else. It's all just kind of hypothetical. And I just, I, I was very interested in it. I had this obsession with people who could change their, change their identity, change their face, change their, uh, the way they presented, especially as it pertained to gender. I think that was such a fantasy for me. But yeah, I was all about like, oh, there's this character. Everybody thinks she's a man, but she's really a woman. I was like, I had all of my characters were like that. And all of them had some kind of fluidity with how they engaged with those identities. So, um, yeah, I think that it's just, it's, it's kind of like I see, my gender now as as being something of a shapeshifter of, you know, it's it brings me joy and makes me excited to think that like, I can change my hair, I can change my clothes, I can change my body even in certain ways. And, and that like changes the way I move through the world. And it's something that is just very like, it's just very fascinating to me. Fun fact, Noelle casted Jacob Tobia, author of The Fab Sissy, A Coming of Gender Story in She-Ra. Here's Jacob with their own non-binary pop culture item that actually isn't non-binary. Sailor Moon. Oh, this is easy. Um, there's many, uh, but but Sailor Moon is a great, it's just a great. Mm-hmm. For me, that show, like, I mean, as a child, like as a gender expressive, gender creative child, I remember watching Sailor Moon um, growing up, which like, if you don't know it that well, it's about like a group of, of like schoolgirls who they like turn into their like sailor, sailor moon, sailor Venus. And they like mm-hmm. go save the world and stuff. And they like look really cute while they do it in like really good skirts and like cool bows on their like here. I remember watching that show and I was obsessed with it when I was a kid and I didn't understand my obsession with it as queer or as trans at the time. But really, like, the part that got me, the thing I loved about that show was there was this transformation moment. And any show that has, like, especially animated shows that have transformation moments where someone goes from their regular day-to-day self to this, like, opulent, incredible, powerful, rainbow glittery version of themselves. And that's what they must become in order to save the world. Right. Like literally Sailor Moon had to be wrapped in rainbow ribbons in this like weird, cool, cosmic kind of transformation sequence before she became Sailor Moon and like did it, you know, and could like go (laughs) go save the world or whatever. And those kinds of moments for me, those moments, those literally the transformation moments where augmenting yourself and getting sparklier and more opulent and more interesting and and more femme often made you more powerful to me that just i i read the subtext felt so felt and still feels so so trans so non-binary so mm. gender transcendent and really like ingrained in me something of a mysticism around how i understood my gender and how i understood the power of femininity specifically right mm, like i, I yeah like i still to this day when i put on a gown I feel like I am transforming and there's a little part of my brain where I am like getting wrapped in those rainbow ribbons and turning into Sailor Moon and off in my armor to to like save the world. Very much me, TBH. Now in my chat with writer, model, and activist Devin Norell, Z's answer was multifaceted. Z cited Leslie Feinberg's Stone Butch Blues as well as the character Ivan in the OG version of The L Word. But I want y'all to hear Devin Norell's take on two things. The first being Marquise Vilson in the documentary The Aggressives. 
love The Aggressors. The Aggressors is a film documentary about uh, trans masculine people in New York City. It's the first time I had seen Marquise. I can call Marquise like my brother now, but at the same time, you know, like Marquise knows that we're both the same and, and, and different, right? Like we're both trans masculine. Yeah. Great to have seen that kind of like black trans masculinity on film. And at the same time, I was just like, damn, but none of these people were just like, I just want to play in makeup. I just want to wear skirts. You know, I don't feel like mm-hmm. I need to wear this. You know, I don't feel like I need to present as masculine all the time. Or maybe my masculinity is actually just presenting as feminine. And so that, for me, is what was missing in the film. But mm-hmm. that's just my particular experience. I thought the film was phenomenal. Yeah. And I'm actually coming out with a follow-up that Marquise is a part of. And then Steven Universe is probably <laughs> a cartoon of all things. Actually, let me, let me, let me jump back. Uh, since we're on cartoons, SpongeBob SquarePants. 100% identify with Sponge- SpongeBob. Yes. The fact that SpongeBob, I mean, I think we all read SpongeBob as a boy, right? But I always read SpongeBob as like a fucking sponge that was whatever he wanted to be on whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like, I never I felt like that. SpongeBob had a gender. He, uh, he was literally a sponge and he absorbed everything. And I mean, like, he absorbed, he could absorb Sandy's personality, Patrick's. Mm-hmm. Uh, Squidward, who we all know is the gayest of gays. <laughs> so like, all of that together. <laughs> I 100% embodied Spongebob growing up. I had Spongebob everything. My mom bought me these knee-high socks, and I would run track with those socks. I'd play basketball with those socks. Like, my nickname was Spongebob at some point. Like, I felt Spongebob through and through in terms of just absorbing whatever kind of gender or whatever kind of presentation that he wanted to be on whatever day. And I mean, there were days when he was trying to be the muscle bro. I love to be that person sometimes, but I don't want to be the me all the time. Then he was playing with butterflies and it's like, wow, a masculinity that I can actually get with. And it was like super cute. And on the animated villain train with me is artist and writer Alok. Right. Well, you know, because it, it used to be standard practice in this country to not allow any visible representation of queer people in media, which people should learn about this history, is that most production companies were not just complicit, but active in producing the idea that queer people were pathological or wrong or dangerous. Oftentimes, the only representation of queer life we got was in Disney villains, right? Uh, People like Ursula, who was actually based off of a drag queen, um, Cruella de Vil, these kinds of forms of femininity that were not necessarily linked to domesticity or being at home or femininity linked to like marriageability. So I think so much of my non-binary icons were these diva villains who I understood and had a deep resonant sense of being misunderstood um, and understanding that that we live in a society where if you have a relationship with your femininity, that you own it and you're not apologizing for it. If you have a relationship with your femininity and it's not actually about trying to please men, of course people are going to demonize you. And I didn't have the language to understand that, but I felt this deep resonant sense of like a commitment to once again, I'm bringing up glit and grammar when I think about my girl Cruella. It's like the looks that she was serving, you knew she's been through some tragedy. You knew that you know that the only way that she could deliver the consistency of those looks was she had been she'd been struggling like me. We've got to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more untold stories beyond the binary. Mm-hmm. 
everyone. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Welcome back. So much about non-binary visibility in this moment highlights a particular type of non-binary person. Tuck Woodstock and I spoke a little bit about that in episode one, and we'll likely dive deeper into that a lot more on next week's episode. But I'm often amazed at the ways older non-binary people are erased from a lot of the discourse that takes place regarding our community. That's why it was important to me to chat with author and advocate Jeffrey Marsh, who is a visible, more seasoned, non-binary public figure. Here's that conversation. I'm Jeffrey. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trans and non-binary. And you want a little intro, you said? Yeah, tell the people what you do, why they should know your greatness. Oh, goodness. Um, Well, my greatness, I hope, is the activism I do. And, you know, the thing that I hope I do is help people hate themselves less. LGBTQ people, yes, for sure. All people, yes, for sure. But that's the thrust of what I want to do. And in that journey of doing that, I was the first person to come out on national TV and say, hey, I'm a non-binary person and talk about that. And it, you know, since then, I've also started to talk about myself as trans, using both words, trans and non-binary. And that's where I am today. That's it. I love that. I want to start there. You being the first, you know, non-binary person, non-binary public figure, I guess, um, on national TV. I'm wondering if for the audience, you can describe what kind of the, the, cultural conversation about non-binary people at that time was like, um, and and your feelings about the way things, I would say, have changed since then. I love the way things have changed. Let's start there. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. This was 2016, <laughs> and Asia Kate Dillon was not, had not appeared on Ellen yet. It was kind of a... Um, I appeared on conservative cable news, Newsmax, if you've heard of them. And it was a really hostile environment. I was actually meant to be the sort of weirdo kind of uh, liberal kind of punching bag energy on the show. So if you don't identify as a man or a woman, what exactly are you? Great question. And I hope that I never find out. Meaning, sometimes I feel like, butch, ready to go, guy, that's the scruff. Sometimes I feel more feminine, artistic, stuff that is considered in this culture to be womanly. I float in this space in between and I always have. Finding the word for it has given me the freedom to truly be myself. 
you know, we can talk about whether I transcended that or not, but the representation was a hostile place. And there really wasn't another show, not until, you know, Asia had been on Ellen, was there a show where we were celebrated and asked questions and uh, loved and embraced and and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I'm always, you know, interested in starting at, at that place of, you know, where things were, you know, just a few years ago to now, because I do think as non-binary people, it at least feels as if our visibility as a community has like skyrocketed, you know, in the last few years. Absolutely. And, you know, I have a lot of folks in my inbox who want the sort of non-binary 101. Like, let's talk mm-hmm. about pronouns. Let's talk about, right? And you and I have both been doing this for years. And there just seems to be mm-hmm. some sort of uh, welcome, as far as I'm concerned, hunger, thirst to understand who we are, where we're coming from. And to me, that's a beautiful blossoming. Mm-hmm. You know, hate, hateful people will say like, oh, it's trendy. And now you're, you're trendy and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's like, no, actually, people are really beginning to understand us and respect us. I want to first ask about, um, at the top, you you talked about using both non-binary as well as trans um, to detail, you know, your, your, your gender journey mm-hmm. and where it is right now. Um, and, you know, in some of my work lately, I've also seen folks who just use non-binary and don't also use trans as their particular label. Yep. Um, I'm wondering what what just the idea of having people using the term non-binary to describe themselves um, more and more says about where we are in our society to you? Well, um, part of part of where I'm famous, <laughs> as I flip my hair, <laughs> is on TikTok. And there's a TikTok mm. meme. There was, you know, they're very short-lived. But there was a TikTok meme about, you know... At the start of the pandemic, I was just supposed to have two weeks off school, and now I'm non-binary. What happened? <laughs> you know, it's like there's been this explosion of people not having to feel the pressure of going into mm-hmm. work and performing their gender in a specific way. And this has led to a lot of people using the word non-binary, which I love, and a lot of people being she, they, and he, they, and sort of opening their their minds and their spirits to the mm-hmm. fullness of who they are. And sort of, I guess, I mean, I can't speak for them, but, you know, sort of chafing against the restrictions that mm-hmm. you and I have been talking about for years. Yeah. Yeah. And it's because they're at home on Zoom. And so their gender is something that is not as performative and not as pressurized as it was mm-hmm. pre-pandemic. And I love mm-hmm. that. And it challenges them, I think, in ways that, you know, when, when we're all moving about our lives and we're going, you're going to work or we're going to the bar or whatever, sometimes you just don't think about the things that you are performing. You don't think about the ways in which you've been like socialized to show up in various ways. Yeah. And when you don't have to do that, when you're stuck at home, you 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 just begin to think differently and to to grapple with things that you normally would not even consider thinking about. 
Oh, absolutely. Amen. And, you know, gender is not what you wear, but so many people talk to me about how they would feel so much pressure to mm-hmm. be their gender from toe tip to head tip. Mm-hmm. And they've noticed themselves not having to make those choices. Cause if you're on zoom, you're sort of just like chest up mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it, what is my gender if I'm in sweatpants, you know, for, for the existence, right? How do I feel mm-hmm. about myself if I'm not having to check those boxes for other people? And I love it. I want to ask you about what I call kind of this, this increase in like, non-binary aesthetics is what I call it. Mm. And so this will, and gender nonconformity, I guess, is another word we can use. Cis folks, you know, engaging in, you know, wearing dresses, right, on red carpets or playing in makeup, right, for Mm -hmm. a photo shoot or whatever the kids are doing on Instagram these days, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Yes. And on magazine covers, right? And on magazine covers, right? I wonder your thoughts as we see more and more people, I don't even know how to term it, but like engaging in or playing around, I guess, with with fashion in that particular way, mm-hmm. um, that's at least for us, signals our identities. Yeah, it's like, oh, someone without naming names, someone can just take it on and off when right. they want to, right? And for us, it's an expression of the deepest part of our soul. It's not mm-hmm. something to play around with uh, from time to time. And I don't mean to minimize the impact of that stuff, because I think it does have a positive impact impact for that to be seen. But, ooh, the most annoying thing is like, wow, that person's brave. Oh. <laughs> yes. Like, um, <laughs> hello, there are those of us who are living it, right? Who are embodying it mm-hmm. all the time. And to, you know, and I always want to say, like, "Mm, brave how? In what way? (laughs) Is that, you know, like, could you be specific? Because it's, because are you saying because it's so awful to be us? And they're, like, Mm. dipping into that, you know, awfulness? Is that what you mean? Anyway, in addition to that, it's like, I know so many beautiful, non-binary, trans, gender non-conforming people who could use more opportunities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I also feel this imbalance of people that are already powerful, already getting the photo shoots, already being on TV, already in the spotlight, pushing some of those boundaries. And Mm -hmm. I just um, have a lot of people that I love who push those boundaries all the time. And I want them to be seen more, you know? So that's part of the layer as well. That I feel, I feel that exact same way. And I've been saying similar to you, I think it's great that whomever is cool and comfortable or whatever to put on a dress and play in some makeup and throw on a wig and like all of that. I think that's great. I think it would also be great if those of us who embody this also are afforded similar opportunities. Um, also aren't, you know, to be quite honest, getting the shit kicked out of us, you know, in various communities um, and things like that. lives are in danger, right? Precisely. And so that's something that I just always hope that 
these the this proliferation of like non-binary aesthetics leads us to that world where we you and i don't get you know uh subjected to the various violences that we often encounter because somebody can look at you know whoever's on the latest you know vogue cover and say oh and like it it makes them them accept it i guess a little bit more you said that so brilliantly and you know what you made me think of is i wonder if the average person the average cis person mm-hmm. feels most comfortable viewing us as fake mm. and that this sort of uh reinforces that or at least you know to have someone who cis in you know what we've been talking about someone who says who's like playing with makeup and has a dress on right mm-hmm. and is on the cover you know born a man and says and is on the cover of a magazine that that can sort of feel like non-threatening yeah yeah but if we're embodying it it is a threat to their very you know concept of the binary and yeah. gender and yeah. stuff like that and so it's a whole different ballgame you can't sell a lot of perfume that way right it makes me also think of of you know the conversations that we have about visibility and representation in Hollywood, mm-hmm. right? And the ways in which you know cis folks have been playing trans folks on screen and winning yep. awards for it. They're also brave, they're very brave, and and they you know they're credited for the transformation right into right. these characters. Um, but the trans folks, right, who are, you know, also transforming themselves, who are also, you know, acting, trying to to get into the industry, aren't afforded that same adulation um, that the cis guys are. Of course. Yeah. And, you know, I realized I'm pitching a TV show right now. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm going into these spaces, um, Zoom, boardrooms. And talking to executives who are mostly straight, white, cisgender men, mm-hmm. who I assume are wealthy people, <laughs> to add on top of that, and they don't understand what non-binary is. And it is crystal clear to me, being in those rooms, that that's a hard experience, and I got to be charming in a certain way mm-hmm. and you know explain and sort of all of that stuff. But my Black friends who are non-binary don't even get meetings. Right. Right. So the whole approach is just layered with who gets into the space. And, you know, because, because of you, I was pondering um, <laughs> getting on with you today. And I was just thinking about how there's so much victim blaming mm. going on mm. that it's like, oh, you have imposter syndrome, so you better get, get over it. Right. Mm. But it's like, no, 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 there's systematic stuff going on here. Mm -hmm. I feel like I don't belong in that room because people don't understand. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're treating me like a weirdo. Mm -hmm. Right. And there there are people who aren't even allowed in that room. So what what are they supposed to do? Yeah. Right. It is. 
And that's why I think, you know, I've been saying a lot um, in these interviews I've been doing for this podcast, as well as in other conversations that like, you know, I'm just super skeptical of this, of what seems like a moment of increased visibility, particularly in this conversation for non-binary people, but also non-binary people who are also trans and trans people who are also not non-binary, because Mm -hmm. I'm interested in what what that opportunity looks like on that other end for the women who lead polls, for example, right? For yeah. the the, yeah. the non the new non-binary actors that we now see popping up in a, a handful of shows, you know, we there still seems to be. I interviewed Bex Taylor Kloss, who is a mm-hmm. young non-binary actor, and they spoke about kind of being brought into these shows for non-binary characters, but having to do kind of this extra education of the director or of the writer's room um, and not being paid for, right, that consultation, mm-hmm. but wanting to ensure that these characters are as 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 embodied, as lived in, as accurate and reflective of a non-binary experience as possible. And I hear that and I say, oh, what we think is kind of a whole net positive in terms of this increase in visibility and representation might might have some pitfalls or some downfalls that come with it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think India Moore said it I mean, I'm going to paraphrase, but, you know, I'm non-binary and I really think the world doesn't understand that or isn't ready to understand that. Mm -hmm. And part of, because there's also this obsession with non-binary representation being very young. Yeah. And that's also part of like, oh, the trendiness and the hipness of it. But again, also the non-threateningness of it. If middle and i'm not i you know i don't i'm not putting a whole group of people in one bucket but it, i almost said middle america but what i mean is the average tv yeah. viewer can think oh that's just a confused teenager mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know it has this this level of safety that it that is completely absent from pose mm-hmm. right it is the complete polar opposite when when people are allowed to speak about their own experience. Mm-hmm. That's really threatening to people, I suppose, but also it's really good TV, yeah. you know? Yeah. I, I just, I mean, and you just said something else in terms of the ways in which so much about the visibility that non-binary people have today is young folks and it is white folks. And, you know, even when I it is skinny, folks. skinny folks, right, and able-bodied folks, right, and like you know, mm-hmm. it's <laughs> it's and it's so interesting to take a look even at the I think it's like ten ish non-binary characters on TV in particular over the last year or two, um, and to look and see how many of these characters even look alike, right? There's there's a a, a certain type of mm-hmm. Um, I've been calling it the Asia Kate Dillon effect. Um, and this is no, no. Yeah, this trans right, mask. Trans yep. mask, mm-hmm. this like, you know, they love to use the word androgynous uh, <laughs> um, to describe mm-hmm. 
the the folks in our community whose presentation are that way but to be non-binary it it can manifest itself in a variety of different ways and what we see on television isn't isn't yet reflecting that that fullness and that vastness absolutely and it's not this comes up a lot in the social media work that i do that there is no one way to look Mm -hmm. non-binary and it really really um, <laughs> confuses some trans people uh, that that's the case. And I say that with love in my heart, but it, it has to be that way because this is a deep personal understanding of our soul that we're expressing. So of course, that's not going to have a lot to do with what's on the outside. If I may be spiritual for a moment, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's not going to have to do with, how much we weigh or what what our face looks like or none of it. <sighs> These conversations have been so affirming. Um, but I want to ask, as someone who um, you, you use the word old for yourself a lot on social media. I do. <laughs> as someone who's not young, right? Who's not 15 or 20 or whatever. I'm wondering... Do you want to know how old I am? Because I have survived. Tell the people. 43 years old. A gorgeous 43. Mm, Thank you. It's lots of foundation, (laughs) you know. I was born. It is like, you know, the, the, anyway, Um, without giving away all the secrets. I was born on 7-7-77. Wow. Long time ago. And actually, you know, I had this first conversation with my mom when I was 11 years old. And there was no, like, first version of, of the first generation of queer I wasn't on yet. No will and grace. None, none of that stuff to even give, like, sort of a mm-hmm. context to what I'd be talking about. Yeah, I think we've come so, so darn far. But anyway, you wanted to ask me about being <laughs> old. Go ahead. So one of the questions I've been asking everyone we interview is like, I'm wondering if there were any moments or people or characters in in pop culture um, when you were coming up that like you look back on today and you're like, that that person or that character or that thing feels non-binary, like you remember it in a very non-binary way, even though it might not actually be, you know, a non-binary character or a non-binary thing. As layered as the answer might be, mm. RuPaul, when I was growing mm. up, and mm, mm, and David Bowie, of course, doing a lot of like glam, and David Bowie in Labyrinth, mm. with all of this like shadow and like eyebrows are gone, you know, and hair all the way up to the ceiling, and and yeah, being the king of the goblins. I was really into that. Also, you know, <laughs> Wonder Woman, mm. because specifically Linda Carter's TV show, because she's, you know, going to go into the office. She's in a suit. She's in a pencil skirt. She's got her bag. Oh, somebody needs me. Let me just twirl around. And here is all of this like glam and fabulousness. That also, by the way, can like deflect the bullets of life coming Mm. at you, right? 
and can also force other people to tell the truth mm. when you, you know, lasso them. Anyway, that to me is a really like the whole superhero vibe is very much to me a mirror of the transformation we go oh through to God. tell the truth about who we are. At the top of this episode, you heard from Mickey Blanco, whose mini album Broken Hearts and Beauty Sleep is out June 18th. They've been active as a musician and artist for nearly a decade, and like Jeffrey, Mickey has witnessed and been part of a shift not only in non-binary visibility, but also in the discourse around gender identity and presentation. When I spoke with Mickey, it was just days after their British GQ style cover dropped. As an entry point to our conversation, I asked them about that experience. Well, so early on in my career, uh, one of the first communities that really accepted me, that really took me under under their wing, was the fashion community. And so it's kind of funny sometimes because as frivolous, as flippant as fashion can be, oftentimes some of the most subversive or transgressive or progressive ideals, concepts, ways of seeing can come through fashion, you know, as this is vehicle, um, you know, almost like a under the radar kind of thing. Um, and, and because it comes through fashion, this, you know, this way of seeing or this ideology or this perspective can almost be not taken as seriously. Mm -hmm. um, because it, because it's not confrontational in that way, you know? And so I remember doing photo shoots, videos with Italian Vogue and with Interview and with Elle. And even though the agenda that I, at the time, was expressing or articulating for, for me was something a bit outside of the realm of what people traditionally identified you know, uh, seeing someone who was gender nonconforming presenting as, I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of people, a lot of people really just read it as drag. And so right. in that drag has this lineage of being humorous and non-confrontational. It was a bit later when I really started to put more music out and to express different sides of my personality in the music videos that people kind of started to clock that what I was doing kind of was a departure from this, from this very non, you know, what I was, what I was doing at that time was actually quite confrontational. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, the things that I was saying was quite aggressive. So um, to kind of come, you know, full circle and now be on the, you know, the print cover of a predominantly, you know, men's, or I would say mask, mask, mm -hmm. <laughs> related, you know, magazine like GQ. I mean, I, I probably would have never, you know, in, in the earlier part of my career seen, you know, something like that coming. But, you know, when, when, when things like a cover or, or certain things like that, when they happen, I think one of the things as an artist that you always have to, you know, remember is that, you know, the covers and, you know, the little, the little things that happen in the press, they're like a part of the job, you know, it's everybody views notoriety differently, right? So I, I think there's not one singular, I don't think we all hold, you know, obviously there are some tenets to what notoriety, you know, is, but notoriety really is, is, is this subjective thing. Mm -hmm. But I've always felt that when, you know, when you get accolades in the press, 
if you're doing your job right as an artist, that's just kind of like a part of the job, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like essentially, you know, I, you know, I got that cover because, you know, I have a record that I feel really proud about and the people that heard that record also, uh, you know, they liked it and then they wanted to give me a cover. I wanted to talk a little bit about what you, uh, something you said and mentioned in the GQ interview. Um, and you spoke about this quote that Kathleen Hanna once said to you about the ways in which some of us are like archived before we, we reach whatever climax point in our careers. And it made me think of the ways in which I've heard other non-binary folks like Alok Manan talk about how Non-binary folks, gender transgressors are often like our aesthetics and our brilliance are often mainstreamed and our bodies aren't necessarily. Um, So I wanted to just hear you talk a little bit more about um, what you call being canonized, right, before you felt like you could, you know, were at this point in your career. Right now, it's this funny thing where there are people that kind of see me as a pioneer and then there are, you know, a lot of people that just found out about, you know, who I was, you know, in the last six months. And so the trajectory of my career has almost kind of always been like that. And so the creation of Mickey Blanco, I mean, Mickey Blanco began first off as a video art project. And what ended up happening was that through this medium of video art, before I even, you know, made rap songs or, or, or decided that I wanted to even try music out, I was 25 years old. Through the creation of this character, I ended up really playing with my gender identity for the first time. And then, you know, a few weeks after the creation of Mickey as this video art, you know, as this video art character, I was very much so for the first time presenting as femme in my everyday life and really Mm -hmm. kind of exploring for the first time what was going on with me because all of a sudden, you know, all of these new ways of feeling, these new ways of being, um, how I was kind of like going through the world, you know, what, what, like there was just an array of things, you know, that, that I had never experienced before just kind of going through life, identifying as like a gay male. And so this probably went on for about three, almost three and a half years. And I had reached a place, you know, where I thought I was going to transition. And I did it because I was very afraid of kind of like what my family would do or think if I medically transitioned. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of fear around that. And so I kind of like almost in this sense, kind of like tucked that away and kind of felt like, okay, well, if I didn't medically transition now, what am I, you know? Yeah. And so that was kind of what was going on in my personal world. You know, I had a really, when I, when I came out, I had this really nice, big, glamorous splash, you know, and I was (laughs) the only person, I was the only gender, I was the only at the time, you know, gender nonconforming person with that level of a platform making my way in the world. And it's kind of interesting because a lot of intersectional conversations that people have had in these last few years, and even now, it's like, even though I wasn't using the academic language, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. even though I didn't have, you know, this textbook or this very intellectual knowledge of of what I was talking about, I was I was talking about a lot of these issues online before people were. I was I just mm-hmm. I just was. That's that's just the truth. 
Yeah. And, you know, I was screaming on Twitter, you know, and I was screaming on Instagram. And I remember we, we, we had that thing, gay media is so white, you know, where we mm-hmm. called out out an attitude and we called out all the magazines for not putting indie, any black or queer or gender nonconforming people, you know, on the covers. And, and, you know, it's, it's just, it's funny because I, I was shouted down so many times, so many doors were closed. So many brand partnerships wouldn't materialize because I was just blatantly honest about mm-hmm. like the, the, the injustice, the frivolity, the fragility. And, and, you know, I was, I was saying a lot of this before it became acceptable to hold people accountable for their right. bad behavior, for their bad cultural transgressions. You know, very early on, like year two or three, maybe year three of me of actually being active in my career, I would start to perform at colleges or I would start to get asked to do panel discussions and people would say to me, oh yeah, we're studying you right now. And mm. it's like, you guys are studying me. What do you mean? And I, and I heard this, like, I'm not joking. I heard this maybe like seven or eight times and I've gotten even more emails. I'm like, oh yeah, like you're in my syllabus. You're in my gender studies class. And which is always this weird feeling because it's like, how can so many people tell me that I'm responsible for shifting culture in this way or pushing things forward. But, but at the same time, it seems so much harder for me mm-hmm. to, to get put in the rooms where my career would actually be elevated. You know, there's actually so many, it's, it's, it's really hard for me to answer this in a very direct way because there are, there are so many layers to, to that, that question, you know? Yeah. And, and and maybe, you know, and maybe what sums it up is that a lot of times the people that open the doors, you know, don't really get to have the roses. Yeah. But but even saying that, I would say is not true of me because like <laughs> like people talk sometimes people talk about me sometimes, like I've had a career for like thirty years. Like this year, like, no, seriously, no, seriously, though, people talk about me like I've had it, like people talk about me sometimes like I'm Cher or something. And it's like, literally, like my second album is going to come out this year. And my third album will be out next year. My first album didn't even come out until 2016. What I guess I'm trying to get at is that I don't think there are many people like me. There are certain people like Kathleen Hanna or this person or that person that get canonized. But I would say this. I think that like what's going to be interesting about me, which is totally fine because there's been a lot of firsts in my career, but I think that like maybe I'm going to be one of those people that like, okay, like it's, you know, that was this era, you know, you can put all of that era in the textbooks if you want. I'm sure they'll be there at some point, (laughs) but then it's like this whole next, you know, this whole next new part of my career and what will come I just try to model myself after the iconic people that I truly find iconic. A lot of people are very okay with this 21st century level of of fame and legacy. I'm not one of those people. Like I look like I look to like David Bowie. I look to Prince. I look to these people because they have the kind of careers, they have the kind of eras, they have the kind of longevity that we still aspire to. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that's where, that's where I want to be. So I just look at this next chapter as like, you know, as now this is like kind of like ushering in a new era. And if because there are all of these things like this, you know, this kind of transgender tipping point that wasn't so real, but still happened, 
you know, because gay marriage was legalized in the United States during the time that I first started making music, all of these conversations around gender identity and sexuality were mainstreamed, you know, during the time that I, you know, began creating music for the first time. So mm -hmm. I understand why the canon is what it is or where I fit into it. But, um, but I do think that there's going to be like a chapter after that, you know, which I'm living now. I love what you just shared there just in terms of, of your, your history of your gender journey and how that matches up with these conversations that folks like to make seem are new, though there are plenty of us who have been having these conversations. Maybe we didn't have that academic language like you mentioned. Well, honey, and I'll just, honey, that's the thing. It's like, sometimes I'll be in, on the internet. I'll be like, oh, like, okay, I'm really glad that like, this girl has this platform and she's spilling the tea. But like, there is like, there is a part of me that's like, well, I was actually kind of spilling this tea <laughs> 10 years ago. But like, y'all, but y'all just didn't want to be woke then. But right. you know what? But if this, but, oh, but let me tell you, as long as culture is moving forward, as long as the girls are gathering cis hetero <laughs> society and, you know, like, like honestly, Someone like Alok has actually, Alok actually made me feel even more comfortable in myself mm. because when, when, when she started talking very publicly about how like, even within, you know, the genderqueer trans community, like this idea that you have to, or, or that the only way to be valid or feel valid mm -hmm. in your transness is to medically transition. Right. You know, when, when she started talking about and having that discourse online, that was one of the first times I actually truly ever felt seen. And I've told her that in person. And I was like, you don't even know how much, you know, you've helped me with some of the things that yeah. you've talked about online, because you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's like the cis hetero society has done a number on us, has really done a, a yes. freaking number on us. And when we start to police ourselves and when we start to live binary culture, and it's and, and and kind of its toxicity trickles into our world. It's like we don't even get to to be like the magical you know being mm -hmm. that 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 we are. And and honestly, like that, yeah, Miss Alok, like she really she really helped me. And I've told her this. She really helped me feel very seen, and she really honestly helped me reflect on a lot of the things that I was still feeling a prisoner of in my own body. Part of the increase in non-binary visibility is the proliferation of what I like to call non-binary aesthetics. That's your resident cis, usually het, often white celebrity, painting their nails or wearing a dress on a red carpet or the cover of a magazine. We all have various thoughts on that. Here's a taste of Lachlan Watson's. It's just like with me being in a position being an AFAB skinny white non-binary person, like that's all great and good, but what am I doing with that? Like, am I uplifting other people? Like, am I opening those doors? That's what I'm expecting from these white guys and et cetera is yes, you can do this, but it's the acknowledging of where it comes from and it's the uplifting of those voices that actually needs to be done. 
That's coming next week on episode three of Untold Stories Beyond the Binary. Make sure you're subscribed wherever you get Slayworthy audio, and don't forget to rate and review. For more Pride content, head to EW.com slash Pride. Make sure you're following Entertainment Weekly at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly on Instagram. And you can catch me on Twitter at Travel Anderson or on Instagram at Ray Jean, R-A-Y-Z-H-O-N. Stay fabulous and slay on.